We are in the book of First Peter. It's one of uh, the books of the New Testament. And the sermon series is titled Strangers on the Earth. And I chose that title because this book basically as a guide for how Christians are to live uh, on this earth. And one of the phrases that, that Peter uses in his letters, he refers to us as strangers. And that's to imply that we're not necessarily completely at home here on earth. We are in the world, but not of the world. We are citizens of an eternal kingdom. We are amongst the earth, but we have been called also to be separate. And so there's this sense in which we live as strangers on the earth. And so I have a working definition. I wanted to try to define exactly what I mean uh, in the context of first Peter by strangers of the earth. And I, I threw this definition out in the first uh, sermon in this series a couple weeks ago, but I want to read it again. And it'll be the first thing. If you have your handout and you're going to take notes today, it'll be the first opportunity to fill in some of these blanks. Strangers on the earth are the people of God who have been granted citizenship in a far better country through faith in Jesus Christ but now live temporarily in this world, seeking to obey and glorify God. And that pulls together a couple of different verses. First Peter chapter two uh, speaks of our lives as strangers on the earth, where in which we are to obey and seek to glorify God. And so that's the kind of working definition. People of God who have been granted citizenship in a far better country through faith in Jesus Christ, but now live temporarily in this world, seeking to obey and glorify God. I think that's a decent, uh, it's a decent definition in terms of what the book of first Peter is about. It's about how do we, how do we live as strangers on this earth, citizens uh, of a far better country through faith in Jesus Christ. And how do we seek to obey and glorify God as we live out our lives here on earth? And so, you know, it's a letter. It's not an instruction manual. It's not necessarily uh, cleanly categorized by topic, but more or less, this is a bit of an instruction manual for us. It's a, it's a guide for how we are to live out our lives here on earth as Christians. And it starts at the beginning. It starts from the, the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ and become citizens in his kingdom and strangers on the earth and goes through many different topics. So it's a fantastic book. I hope you're reading it throughout the week. I hope you're reading in anticipation of us uh, turning to these passages together. Today, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 13 through 25. So that's uh, chapter one, verses 13 through 25. I'll read, you can follow along in your Bible or on the screen. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. If you appeal to the father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you're to conduct yourselves in reverence during your, during your time living as strangers. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Verse 22, since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart, love one another constantly 
Because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. So as I was looking at this text and thinking about how to, how to break this down and, and put it into a sermon, I saw three imperatives, three commands, three things that we're instructed to do. And the first uh, comes and then moves quickly to the second, but the second comes with an explanation or an answer to the question of why, why are we to do that? And then the same with the third, there's an explanation and, or an answer to the question of why. And so that's how I've structured this message. I have three imperatives and with two of those, we'll get a little bit more of an explanation of why within the text. The first one is this strangers are to set their hope on the things to come. Strangers are to set their hope on the things to come. Again, if you're taking notes, you can write that down as the next thing in the handout. Verse 13 says, therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the way this is stated here in the CSB, it sounds like there's actually two imperatives. One, be sober minded and two, set your hope completely on the grace of God. Other translations and some things within the Greek text um, sort of link having your mind ready for action and being sober minded together. And, and even trans other translations would say something more like with your minds ready for action. And with a sober mind, set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. So for those reasons, I, I see the imperative here. The command is actually to set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He starts, if we go back to the beginning of verse 13, he says, therefore, and anytime you see the word therefore, you should ask the question, what is it therefore, right? Therefore points us back to previous material. And we, we've seen so far in the first part of chapter one, really an explanation of the gospel, what Jesus has done for us and what the, some of the implications of the salvation that Jesus has, has given to us should be in our lives. And so pointing back to the gospel, therefore, in light of the gospel, in light of what Jesus has done, that he's, he's brought us into a living hope and that we've been born again in him. In light of that, we should have our minds ready for action. Now, some translations will say, gird up the loins of your mind. And that's, uh, that's a more clear transit translation of the Greek. Actually, this idea of gird up your loins is something that occurs several times throughout the Bible. It's sort of a, a, an ancient times phrase to gird up your loins is kind of an interesting expression. It, it really means, and at the end of the day, it means to get ready or to get ready for action as it's translated here. You see in ancient times when men would generally walk around in loose fitting robes, uh, there were some limitations placed on them by those robes. It was difficult to, to work in a robe that hung down, you know, well past your knees to your ankles. So to get ready for work or to get ready for action or to get ready for fighting or to get ready for something that, you know, running that anything that 
involved uh, a higher level of physical activity. They would, they would kind of bend over and pull down, pull the, the, the bottom and the back of their robe up and they would bring it up and they would sort of tuck it into their belt. And it would look a little bit silly to us probably, you know, almost like diaper like fashion, but that's essentially what was meant by gird up your loins. It means to get ready. And I just, I think that phrase is interesting. You'll see it in other translations. You'll see it throughout the Bible at different times. So it's important to know what it means. It means get ready, prepare yourself. And so here, therefore, in light of the gospel, having prepared ourselves, having prepared our minds and having, having uh, entered into a mentality in which we are sober minded, putting our thoughts into action, preparing ourselves to think about something. The command here is to set your hope completely on the things, completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Get yourself ready with your mind, having been prepared in light of the gospel, having been, having been born into a living hope, having been born into a new life, having been transferred from one citizenship of one kingdom into another and having your mind ready with the gospel, set your hope on the things that are to come. Set your minds and, and your thoughts and your mental capacity on what is to come. Now, it's important to note that setting your hope on things in the future should not result in becoming useless in the present. In fact, the opposite should be true. If you're doing this right, it's not that you become so consumed with future events that you don't know what to do in the present. If you're doing this right, setting your mind on the things to come and, and, and setting your hope on things to come will actually result in appropriate activity in the present, in the here and now. I think an example of this would be before Kim and I got married, before I proposed to her. I had in mind this future of us being together. And I had set my mind to that. I set, I set my hope on what could be. And because of that, I, I started to do things to, to prepare for that future. I started saving up money because I wanted to buy her a nice engagement ring. Uh, I started thinking about when the appropriate time w- would be to do that. In fact, the, the summer that we got engaged, I'd taken on some, some side jobs, cutting grass and, and doing some yard work just to get some extra cash together. What I had hoped for in the future actually led me to, to act in the here and now. And, uh, you know, I thought about, well, how am I going to do this? And, and I went and I, I talked to her dad and I got his permission to propose to her and I was preparing myself. And then, uh, the day came when I was ready to propose to her and I wrote down all of this stuff that I wanted to say, cause I was afraid I, I wouldn't remember it in the moment. And then I did something that I think, uh, probably was one of the most important decisions I've made in my life. I've proposed to her on my birthday because I figured that gave me at least, I don't know, 25 to 30% chance of her saying yes. You know, what girl on on some guy's birthday wants to turn him down? And so the time came and I proposed to her and she said yes. And a few months later, uh, I was standing at the altar and, uh, you know, the entire church's attention was on the back of the church. And I don't remember what happened, but something happened that Kim got delayed. And I remember just standing there and people were starting to get nervous, like what's going on. And then eventually the time came and she came out and she walked down that aisle and we got married. But the point being is that it was 
what I'd hoped for in the future, what I had hoped would come to pass led me to become very active in the present. It wasn't, it wasn't a passive waiting of wishful thinking. I acted upon what I envisioned the future to be. And I think that's the biblical idea here that we are to set our hope completely on the grace to come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are to live our lives in light of what is to come. We are to live lives that are set, that our hope is set on the future, but that we are active in the present. Uh, C.S. Lewis says something about this in mere Christianity. He says, a continual looking forward to the internal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do, it does not mean that we're to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that Christians, the Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. John Piper commented uh, on the same topic. He said this, he said, yes, I know it's possible to be so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly use. My problem is I've never met one of those people. And I suspect if I met one, the problem would not be that his mind is full of the glories of heaven, but that his mind is empty and his mouth is full of platitudes. I suspect that for every professing believer who is useless in this world because of otherworldliness, there are a hundred who are useless because of this worldliness. And so to set our minds and to set our hope on what is to come, to set our minds on the future, uh, the, our future and the future of the world at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that means at the end of all things on the earth, when Jesus returns and the end of, of, of human history, at least as we know it, really just the beginning of human history as it ought to be, but the end of human history as we know it, the coming and return of Jesus Christ, when we set our minds on the hope that we have in that, we become most good for the earth and we become most effective in how we live our lives. This is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus during his time on the earth and nobody has ever done more good for humankind than Jesus, not even close. And during his time on the earth, he set his mind and he set his hope on what lied ahead. Hebrews 12 tells us this in verses one through three. You just have to listen. This won't be on the slides. It says, therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross. 
For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and give up. And in this, in this one passage, the author of Hebrews both tells us this is what Jesus did for the joy that was set before him, for things to come in the future and the hope that he had in that. He did what he did on earth. He endured the cross despising its shame. And then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. But in this passage, not only are we told that Jesus did that, but we're commanded to do the same. A couple of times we're told here, keep our eyes on Jesus. Set your hope on the things to come. Keep your eyes on Jesus, looking to his example, looking to his coming return, looking to what to his promises for us believers in all of eternity. Set our hope on the things to come. Back to 1 Peter 1. It says, set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope completely, fully. Put your hope in what is to come when Jesus Christ returns. So that's the first imperative here. That strangers set their hope on the things to come. The next is this. Strangers set their effort on being obedient. Strangers set their effort on being obedient. This comes in the very next verse of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, where he says, As obedient children do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. As obedient children do not be conformed, to not be conformed uh, to the desires of your former ignorance means instead to be conformed to the desires that we are called to emulate in Christ Jesus, the things that, that he has set examples uh, for us as, as believers, the things that we are to follow in his footsteps as we live out our lives here on earth as obedient children. See, we're not just saved from sin into neutrality before God. We are saved from sin into obedience before God. We're saved from something, our disobedience and the, the penalty and the destruction that our sin caused and created. And we're saved into obedience. We're saved from sin and death and saved into obedience and life. We're, we're, there should be a complete 180 and change in how we live our, our lives. Not, I don't mean to, I'm not suggesting that we've conquered every sin, but that in our, our efforts, we no longer, uh, we no longer accept the ways of this world. We no longer accept what it says here in first Peter is the desires of our former ignorance. You see, regardless of whether or not, regardless of when you came to Christ, there was a time where you were not yet saved. And in that state of not yet being saved, you lived in an ig a state of ignorance a state of ignorance that was filled with desires that were contrary to obedience and to the will of God. And once we're saved, even if that happened at a very young age, we are born into a life now where our desires are, are to be conformed, not to the old way of doing things, but to this new life, this new life that we have in Jesus Christ. Ephesians two verses eight through 10, very familiar passage of scripture tells us this, for you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one may boast. So it's very clear here in this passage and throughout scripture that we're not saved because of or by our works. We're saved by the grace of God. 
It's only by his grace and mercy and what Jesus did on our behalf that we come into salvation, but we're saved by what Jesus did. And now we're saved into obedience. It says that in verse 10, Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So we're saved by his work, not by ours, but we're saved to the work that he has called us to do, which is now obedience in Christ. I said that two out of these three imperatives came with an explanation. The first one being the exception. The second one has this explanation. If verse 14 tells us as obedient children to not be conformed to the desires of our former ignorance, here's the why verse 15, but as the one who called you is holy. You also are to be holy in all your conduct for it is written, be holy because I am holy. That's a reference back to uh, Leviticus chapter 19. Let me just pause and say, God from the very beginning reveals himself as holy and calls his people, whether it's old Testament Israel or new Testament believers calls his people into his holiness. He remains holy and calls us to come towards him and to be obedient and to become holy like him. Uh, That was verse, where did I stop at? Verse 16, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Verse 17, if you appeal to the father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. For you, for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from your ancestors. Like I mentioned before, we're all born into a sinful way of living. We need to be born out of that into new life. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. I just want to go back to verse 20. It says he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. If you didn't listen to last week's message, it might be helpful to go back and and listen to that uh, because it kind of outlines uh, that, that message. We looked at the passage immediately before this, where it kind of describes this concept that creation in history was waiting for the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was not a development in God's plan. As time went on, he was with God developing that plan from the beginning, but the revelation of Jesus Christ came 2000 years ago when he came to the earth. And so he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you or for us. Okay. So a couple of things, verse 18, for, you know, that you were redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from your ancestors. That kind of ties back to verse 14, which is our imperative here. Do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. And maybe I've already spoken on that enough, but I just wanted to make that connection that this is a very strong and important biblical concept here that we are born out of a time of disobedience into a time and a life, I should say, of obedience as believers in Christ. Verse 19 says that we were were bought out of that with the precious blood of Christ. The price that God paid to to rescue you and I 
from the old life of disobedience and death, the price that he paid to redeem us, to buy us back and to bring us into the new life of life and obedience was the blood of his son. It was Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross. It was before Jesus went to the cross, he he stood up with his disciples at the last supper and and he held up the wine and he said, this is my blood given for you, the blood of a new covenant. It was the, it was the price that God used to purchase us. You are purchased with the blood of Christ. So what is your value? What is your worth? Well, I always think that value and worth are determined by the price that somebody is willing to pay for something. Um, you know, we see this, we see this all the time with, um, like historical artifacts and things like that. You can have something that really in a sense is of no value whatsoever, but it has some sort of historical significance and therefore somebody's willing to pay a, a great price for it. It's not the object itself that, that has value. It's the meaning that it's associated with and therefore the value goes up. Well, our value and our worth is determined by what someone was willing to pay for us. And that someone being God was willing to pay with the blood of his son. That's the value of all believers that we are bought with. Not something, not something perishable like silver or gold verse 18 says, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. Jesus values the church above everything else on earth. I never like it when I hear Christians talking bad about the church. Because Jesus identifies and expresses the value he places on the church with three things, bride, body, and blood. First of all, he calls the church his bride. You and I are his bride. He has wedded himself to us. He has committed himself to us. He calls the church his bride, even in in all of her messiness and all of her problems and everything that's wrong with the church uh, today and all throughout history. He still calls her his bride. He says that we are his body. The church is the body of Christ. We as individual members are individual parts of the body of Christ. And he, and he says that he bought the church and his people with his blood. And so I think that Jesus himself places incredible importance and value on the church. And so we should be people that build up the church and believe in the church and love the church because it's Jesus's bride, it's his body, and he bought it with his blood. So all all of that under this idea that, that strangers set their effort on being obedient. Okay, so strangers set their hope on the things that come. Strangers set their effort on being obedient. And then lastly, strangers set their hearts on love. We're going to pick this up in verse 22 of first Peter chapter one, strangers set their hearts on love. It says in verse 22, since you have purified yourself by your obedience to the truth so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart, love one another constantly. There it is. The third imperative, love one another constantly. Strangers will set their hearts on love. We are to love one another constantly. It's important to note that we're not called to worldly love. There's a huge emphasis right now in our society on a love that has most people in in our country today just confused and confounded. 
What does it mean to love? And what does it mean to hate? There are, there are very sh- strongly conflicting ideas of what is love and what is hate and what does it look like to love somebody? And I would, I would encourage Christians to stand strong on the biblical view of love the biblical view of love. What, what does it mean to love? We need to look to the Bible to understand what it means to love. Uh, one of the things that it means, and this was in an article that I posted to our Facebook group this week, is to love someone is to want what God wants for them. That's a biblical view of love. To love someone biblically, you have to want for them, not necessarily what they want for themselves, not necessarily what this world wants for them, but to love biblically is to want for someone else what God wants for them. That's biblical love. And it's very important that we hold on to biblical definitions and a biblical worldview in a time of such chaos and crisis. Our world is confused. Our world is our world is burning. Our world is lost. Our world does not know which way is right and which way is wrong and which way is up and which way is down. We need to be rooted in what scripture teaches us about this world. It is the only, it's the only way that we are going to anchor ourselves to what is true. And the world can spin and, and the, the wind can blow and, the, and do all of the things that it's doing right now. But we as strangers on this earth, this is part of what it means to be a stranger on earth, to not get caught up in all of that. And to not follow after some secular idea, some non-Christian idea of what it means to do right in this world or to love in this world, but to be rooted in what the Bible teaches us is love. Love is one of the most important subjects in all of scripture. God is love. True love aligns itself from God because it's part of his nature. It's part of his character and it's just part of his makeup. And so we are called into that. We are called to love as he loves to first love the Lord. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he added a second. He said, the second is like it is to love your neighbor as yourself. But we first love God and it's out of loving God that we'll know how to love our neighbor because biblical love is to want for someone else what God wants for them. I think that's extremely important right now. Verse 23 gives us the why. This is the the second of the two imperatives that come with an explanation, right? Verse 23, because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. And then he he quotes scripture. And if you have a print Bible, you might even see that this is bolded. When you're reading the New Testament, uh, well, most, most print Bibles, if you're reading the New Testament, and then all of a sudden words are included in bold font, that means they are a quotation of some Old Testament scripture. For all flesh is like grass in all its glory, like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And then Peter adds after that, and this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. God's word does endure forever. And his word is the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the good news about what he did to rescue us from death and disobedience, to bring us into life and obedience in Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. Flesh is compared to, to grass. It withers, it fades, it goes away. I mean, this, this year I delight 
when summer turns to that point where grass stops growing and it just dies and I have to mow it like every other week instead of every other day. And this year we got there faster than ever, but that's an example here of of flesh doesn't last forever. Flowers don't last forever. Think about the, the daffodils around here, one of the first flowers to, to blossom in the spring. They come out and they're beautiful. Like, ah, oh, yes, a sign of spring. And then they're gone and they disappear. So it is with flesh. And so it is with the word of man, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And that's why we want as strangers to align our lives with the word of God, not the word of this world. Okay, so let me kind of pull all of this together. When we talk about discipleship, we often talk about three different areas of discipleship. We talk about head, what we think, and and where our minds go. And we talk about hands, uh, which is symbolic of what we do, what is the activity of discipleship. And we talk about our heart, which is our affection and sort of the home of our spiritual life in Christ. And so head, hands, and heart are often an example of what we the, the different aspects of discipleship of following after Christ. And I, I just thought this passage, the way it kind of those three imperatives unfold is it really encapsulates each of those in terms of our head. We are to set our hope on things to come in terms of our hands. We are set to set our effort on obedience. And in terms of our hearts, we are to set our hearts on love. And so the last thing I want to say before I conclude and which is on your handouts is this. This world desperately needs Christians who will commit head, hands, and heart to being like Christ. This world desperately needs that right now. This world is in greater need than any time in my lifetime of Christians who will commit themselves to living as strangers on the earth to living as first Peter calls us to, to commit ourselves head, to set our hope on things to come hands, to set our efforts on obedience and heart to set our hearts on loving the way that God loves. So I want to invite you. If you are a, if you're a believer in Christ, you're a stranger on this earth. Don't expect to fit in. If you're fitting in, you're doing it wrong. If you're, just, if, if you're just like everybody else and you're thinking the same way everybody else is thinking and you're acting the same way everybody is acting and your heart, you're, the, the love that you show reflects the type of love that this world shows, you're doing it wrong. We are called, we are called to be different, to be strangers, to be set apart, to look and to act and to think and to feel differently about the things of this world. And so let's commit to that. Let's commit to learning what it means as we study first Peter to be strangers on this earth. And if you haven't yet committed your life to Christ, I invite you to do that today, to put your faith and trust in him and join us. Don't go down with the sinking ship of this world, but join us on the lifeboat of Jesus Christ and live forever through eternal life that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together as we close the sermon time. Father, we thank you that your word is truth and it endures forever. This world is in chaos right now, but this world has been in chaos many times. And the one, the one thing that has stood through it all is you and your word. For you do not fade like the grass and you don't wither away like human flesh does. Those things are temporary. You are eternal. You are our foundation. You are our rock. You are our shelter. But help us, God, to embrace this idea of being strangers here on the earth. 
Help us to not fit in because we're, we're have our minds set on you and we have our hands set on obedience to your word, not to what this world demands of us and that we have our hearts set on loving the way that you love. Pray that you would do that work in us and do it as we continue to study through the book of first Peter. We love you and we thank you in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Well, next week, we hope you'll join us uh, at the outdoor service on Saturday, June 27th. And in light of that, we will not stream on Saturday night. We are going to make every effort to capture that service and uh, get it uploaded as quickly as possible. Uh, we, we would hope that would be Sunday morning, but uh, it's just really going to depend on how the technology works out. That'll be our first time capturing um, somewhere else and then trying to upload that. So uh, we're going to do our very best to make that available next weekend. But if, if we don't succeed, we hope that you understand. Uh, and if you can't join us, um, we understand uh, and we hope to be with you very soon. And we'll be back online the following weekend. Thanks. Let's continue to worship together.